You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Last year, my name is Bill with one L. With me, he can't go out with you this weekend. He has to wash his hair. It's Chef McLarge Huge. I got that leave-in conditioner. That's why I can't go anywhere. <laughs> What's going on? How are you? I'm all right, man. It's, it's spring, so get that going for us. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm having a good week. My daughter uh, Margaret has taken to making funfetti. Have you ever made a funfetti cake, Bill? Funfetti cake. I have seen the boxes uh, as as I make my way down the grocery aisles. Uh, they're directly across from the baking soda. Uh, I actually I actually don't know what funfetti is. So fill me in. Fun funfetti is like little pieces of they're like little pieces of colored candy nothings in that end up in the cake and make it look like confetti. So funfetti confetti, and it, it you can also get funfetti frosting for funfetti cakes, which is white and has like sparkles. And and then my daughter takes. Black icing and covers the cake with swears. <laughs> so every now and then, I like I today. I came up from, I came up from my from my work day down in the basement office to find a cake with ass bitch written across the top of it, <laughs> sitting on my counter, which made me laugh for many many minutes. So yeah, so my daughter has taken it. This isn't the first time she's done it. It's become something that's a, more often than I thought would be funny. And it's still funny. Uh, th- does she take requests? <laughs> she she does not take requests. Okay. I'm waiting to see if she starts putting like more and more swears on them as the cakes go on. So it's like not just three swears. It'll be like ten swears. And then finally it'll just be swears all over the cake. Like the cake was made by someone with Tourette syndrome and they had compelled to write it out. But yeah, it's pretty funny. Let me know when she moves on to ethnic slurs. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, we don't get many visitors here at uh, Chateau McLarge Huge. That's actually amazing. My, you know, my, yes. my birthday's in October. Just let her, you know, just a reminder. By then, she will have a giant repertoire of swears that she's very good at putting on cakes. And uh, by the way, the, her her penmanship with the icing looks like something that a serial killer would write. So it's awesome. <laughs> it looks like the Pink Floyd the Wall uh, lyrics. Yeah, sheet. definitely. Yeah. yeah, that kind of like rage anger letters cake. <laughs> Yeah, let her know for my birthday. Like maybe by then she'll like evolve and she'll move up to like, you know, offensive cannolis or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll see what I can do. I'll, I'll put in a request. <laughs> see if there are any other confectionery she wants to <laughs> defile those swears and, and other things. But it's it it has definitely made for some funny, funny, funny dessert toppings. It's definitely a, a, a market, I think. Yeah. Oh, oh, Meg, you're such a whip. Hey, I got a, a bit of a, a problem. I was not able to come up with a trivia question for you this week. Oh. Do, you, do, you have, do you have any? <laughs> okay, that, <laughs> that answered my question. My question was, do you have any in the in the canon for me? I do. My trivia question for you, Mr. Bill, yes. is 
what number one song with the longest title? Or what is the, 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 the song to reach number one that has the longest title? Uh, like like the most words in the title? Correct. Okay. Uh, see, my mind just wants to go to that freaking pretentious Fiona Apple album. The name of the album was the first chapter of a book. Um, longest song title. Well, Not, all right. I'll, I'll, uh, my, I'm going to sit and meditate on this, and then we'll... Uh, I'll give you a wrong answer at the end of the show. All right. Uh, so, whose turn is it? Uh, hold on. Let me flip through my calendar. Your, your turn. All right. Your turn to start. Your turn. All right. So, start. So, this is the week beginning May the 3rd. And go. All right. May 3rd, 1971. America's favorite radio station, collectively. Uh, National Public Radio begins its programming broadcasts. While I don't know exactly what programs it carried that first day... I bet they sounded a lot like this. And then asked for money from the listeners. We're going to have a show today that's really going to get your blood going. Throw in this tote bag if you donate $20 to the National Public Radio Fund Drive. National Public Radio, the sort of, uh, came about by congressional action so that they would be technically an impartial place for Americans across every spectrum to be able to get national news as well as educational programming. And that was that was where it started. Generally, it's considered an offshoot of uh, PBS, and they are definitely interlinked. But National Public Radio is its own entity, although they do share some funding streams. You would think that NPR would be first before PBS, but it's not. Nope. PBS is around for at least a couple of years before NPR, yeah. I think what happened was like somebody in Congress was like flipping through the FM dial. Like they probably had a radio that could they could listen to like Spectrum from all over the country, right? Or the FCC could. So they're like rolling that the dial on the analog stereo wheel, and they're hearing like thunderstruck. Thunderstruck, and then they hear thunderstruck, and then thunderstruck, 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 struck again. And somebody said, "Holy mackerel, man! We need to get something else on the air that's not thunderstruck." And that's where National Public Radio came from. As far as I know, uh, they, they got a, a reaction to Thunderstruck. <laughs> Even though Thunderstruck wouldn't come out for at least another ten years. NPR though, they have a lot of like really cool programming on there. Like I, I'm I'm a podcast addict, not just because I, I I make one. I listen to a lot of podcasts at work, and NPR has like a lot of cool stuff. You know, in addition to like all, all things considered, which is oddly enough not available as a podcast. But, like, This American Life is a great show. All Songs Considered is cool. Radio Lab, I like. There's a there's a bunch of stuff, a bunch of their shows that... And they were really one of the first ones to start to put their content out as podcasts because they have a nationwide footprint. Right. So the NPR programming, you might hear at a different time in California than you will in Massachusetts or New Hampshire. Right. But the bulk of their programming will be the same. So it'll be All Things Considered and it'll be This American Life and Radio Lab and other stuff like that. I, I, my favorite show used to be the... um. The Writer's Almanac. So I, I love Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I've been listening to that. I remember listening to it when I drove cross country with my brother. So that was like, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And, uh, I remember hearing it. I was like, this is really funny. Then, I mean, that was even before podcasts were even really a thing. Right. Here's a trivia question. Which host from the podcast This Week Was Way Better Last Year was featured on NPR? Wait, wait, don't tell me. Aha, it was me, NPR. Oh, hey. Yep. NPR in 2016, I think it was, did a, a segment on their Sunday morning show for Halloween, and they interviewed me because I am a haunted house actor, and I also run a what we called scare school, where I would 
you know, I'm a veteran, so I would teach all the new actors, you know, basically how to scare people. And yep, yeah, and they ran a story on me, which was pretty cool. That is very cool. Yep. Happy May third birthday, National Public Radio. Uh, happy birthday, National Public Radio. <sighs> This week on This American Life, a family resorts to cannibalism. <laughs> we'll talk about that and other things with Ira Glass. Yep, so this week on NPR, uh, we're going to be talking about an engineering marvel, which got its start on May the 4th, 1904, uh, which is when digging commenced on the Panama Canal. Ah, yes. Uh, the- and the Panama Canal came about in the most amazingly sort of obliquely funny way ever go on so yes so the spanish-american war started in like 1896 it's only four years earlier or eight years earlier and what happened was the u.s really needed some ships from its pacific fleet in the atlantic uh specifically in the caribbean to sort of deal with the spanish that were still there in like san san juan and puerto rico and in cuba yeah south america's (laughs) a long way around yeah it took a yeah it takes a long time to get around by the time the ships got to Havana Harbor... You're almost better off going the other way. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, right. Trying to find the Northwest Passage. But, but yeah, so so Theodore Roosevelt, when he became president, was like, I'm going to do this in my best Theodore Roosevelt yelling through a cone-typed amplifier. We need a canal through the Panama! And that's, and that's what he got, a way to join both the Atlantic and Pacific to get ships more quickly through. That's that's a like an engineering marvel, too. It's really, really cool to like look at videos the way that works because the ships just don't like sail through. They go through a, ser- a series of locks and channels because there would be a, a very strong current if they just like made a hole, you know, through the <laughs> through the land. Right, 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 right. And you wouldn't be able to the ships could go in one direction, but they wouldn't be able to go in the other direction. Because we have a canal over here in Cape Cod. There's no locks and channels, though. It's just the, the current isn't that strong. But Panama, they must have been like, oh, we got to do something about this. So, yeah, they have these, like, series of locks and channels where the ships, like, go in. It gets, like, walled off with uh, with a dam. And then they bring the, the water level up. And then they release the water and it goes into the next thing. And then they don't just sail through. They kind of, like, get pushed through. Yeah, they have to be carried through because they, they, they go above sea level in spots. It's really, 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 really amazing. The, the way that it was built. So, awesome stuff there. It didn't open until, like, almost, like, what, 1916 or 1920. It took a long time to build because a lot of it was cleared by hand and it started to be dug by hand. Yeah, they didn't have the kind of equipment that they have now, right? And, and I imagine that, like, the lock system, like, in my pea brain mind, it was like, you know, they dug, they dug the canal and they're like, yeah, this isn't going to work. We're going to have to come up with another idea. Right. But we got, we got this big hole... <laughs> it keeps filling up with water. That's what we wanted to do, but it's going to keep filling up with water. But that's what we wanted to do. And also a uh, big inspiration for our good friend David Lee Roth to reach down between his legs and ease his seat back. <laughs> yes. I have no so idea what Panama. that song is about. It has nothing to do with Panama. I think Panama... I've never really gone through and like looked at the lyrics of it now that you mentioned that. I just went through like, how many lyrics to that song do I actually know? <laughs> and it's like, I know Panama, which for the first year I heard that song was out, 1984, I thought it was let it rock and i'm like doesn't make any sense either so i I don't know late stage van halen with david lee roth is a strange strange place to put your ears Uh, at that time i just thought the name of the song was (laughs) (laughs) thank you david lee roth for all your work in panama (laughs) all right let's move on to the fifth 
May 5th, 1925, a high school teacher named John T. Scopes is arrested in Dayton, Tennessee for teaching the theory of evolution. You bastard. Right? He, that's the beginning of the famous Scopes monkey trial, which was a humongous uh, news story in 1925, where both William Jennings Bryant, most famous populist lawyer in the United States, came for the prosecution, and Clarence Darrow, the one of the founders of the ACLU, was the A number one lawyer, civil rights attorney in the United States, came to defend John T. Scopes. Scopes lost and had to pay a fine of 100 bucks, which the ACLU paid. That's the story. And it, it was all over the newspapers. H.L. Mencken wrote a bunch of amazing uh, news articles from the Tales from the Trial, and it was captured in a great play and film called Inherit the Wind. Totally worth going to see. Now, that is only, like, just under 100 years ago, right? What year, what year did you say it was? 1925. Yeah, 1925. That is so, like, cuckoo bananas to think that this person was teaching, you know, evolution in school, and he got arrested for it, and he lost! Yep. He lost to a jury of his peers, yeah. And don't be surprised if this this seems to come around every 10 or 12 years or so. It'll get challenged or students will end up on the news because they have to sign a permission form or some parent will say like, my child was forced to take a class about evolution. And unfortunately, like there's because school boards are controlled locally, there's always the potential where the curriculum can get altered, changed or messed around with by the folks who have a political agenda to make it possible. I think it was Ohio. It was only like a couple of years ago, too, where if there's a question on a test and you get the answer wrong, but if the answer is right, according to your religious beliefs, then you don't get the answer wrong. Mike, I needed that kind of trapdoor in algebra. Oh, yeah, no kidding, man. I'd be making up... high school? Oh, I'd be a mathematician right now. I'd be making up religion on the spot, yeah. (laughs) A times B. B squared minus C divided by F. But I believe that the answer to this is F U. <laughs> According to my ancient doctrine, there's a lot of like crazy beliefs in, you know, and not just in like Western religions, but like in other religions all over the world. There's all sorts of cuckoo banana stuff. To be able to say that your answer is right just because you think it's right, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, this religion and science are two things I, I try not to try and mix together, like bacon soda and vinegar, or oil and water, unless I'm making salad dressing, in which case it goes together well. Yeah. And bacon soda and vinegar is the staple of any good science fair. It's true. It's, oh, how else do you make a volcano? I certainly can't melt rock. <laughs> so moving on to something less controversial. May the 6th, 1954, a man by the name of Roger Bannister is the first person to break the four-minute mile. He ran... Man, that's fast. Yeah, he ran a whole mile in less than four minutes. That It's like, what, three minutes and 50-something seconds, right? Yeah, he didn't break it by much. That's insane, though. I'll go out for a jog sometimes first thing in the morning, whenever, maybe, maybe starting next week, now that it's warming up, I guess. But up to the top of my street and then down is exactly one mile. And the thought of doing that in, like... Four minutes? No, that, that that doesn't even register. It's like staring at an Escher drawing. So I bet you couldn't do that in four minutes on your unicycle. Uh, no, I, I couldn't even do that on my bicycle, for Christ. I got my time doing it in my car. <laughs> well, it's the J-turn at the end of the halfway yeah. point that's the hard part. That slows you right down. But no, I mean, a four-minute mile is fast. And, and the reason this is really interesting is, like, only a few people have ever run this fast. And they're not, like, they're not like weird freaks in nature. They just are able to tap into some 
muscular synchronicity and breathing and heartbeat and everything else that it's just the right balance of all those things and they're able to go super fast that's the like the most interesting part of the story and why i picked this story because i love stories like this the other day i was i was plucking around on my ukulele i'm going somewhere with this i swear i'm plucking around on my ukulele and i remembered when i was a kid my brother wanted a guitar it didn't last very long but he wanted a guitar and my mother said no they're too hard you'll never learn they're too hard to play like, my mother did not have this, like, go get him tiger attitude, like, at all. Right? <laughs> the super supportive mom that you always hear about. You're never going to be good at this, so why don't you just not try? Yeah, exactly. That was my mom, right. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, you know, uh, spiritus rebellious in me, yes. my attitude is, like, complete opposite of that. It's like, you'll never do that. Well, I'm going to freaking try, you know. Uh, I, I learn... I learned to ride a unicycle probably much later in life than most people do. And now I have this unicycle. Well, here's the thing with Roger Bannister. Up until 1954, nobody had ever run the four-minute mile before. It was like this, this brass ring, this impossible goal. Nobody had ever did it. Many, many tried, but nobody ever did it. After Roger Bannister broke that barrier... Within a year, another dozen people did it. Wow. Once it became possible, people were able to do it. Up until that point, they thought it was impossible. But once it, that threshold was broken, it became possible. It, it, you know, flying in the face of, uh, of Mrs. 1L, where a guitar is too hard, it, that, that shouldn't stop you from trying, you know? You don't want to be the guy who's sitting there and is like, well, I'll show you. And you start, bam, 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 bam. Bail, bail, damn! Oh, damn it! <laughs> All right, I give up, mom. But, you win. But you know what, though, the, with the thing with the with like uh, the go get him tiger attitude of my mom, am I good at the ukulele? No, not really. I wouldn't play in front of people, uh, you know, except for like, hey, check this out. But I like it. It's fun. You know what I mean? There's no reason why you shouldn't do something just because it's too hard, right. or even that you're not it's good not at like it. it. It's not like you're starting the ukulele. And be like, today the ukulele in my bedroom. Tomorrow, Carnegie Hall. Yeah, yeah. It's not like people like don't think that way anymore. You know, it's like today the ukulele in my bedroom. Tomorrow, probably also the ukulele in my bedroom. Possibly also in the living room. Yep, I, I like it in the bathroom. The acoustics are nice. All right, next up, May seventh, eighteen ninety-five. Russian scientist Alexander Stepanovich Popov demonstrates to the Russian Physical and Chemical Society his invention: the world's first radio receiver. Does it in Saint Petersburg, Russia? It's still celebrated today as Radio Day. Do you know what he heard in 1895, the first time he turned the button on and started to flip through the dial? Uh, he heard Thunderstruck. Because <laughs> guaranteed it was part of an all-weekend ACDC block. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Thunder! I've seen videos of people playing Thunderstruck on the ukulele. It's not me. I can't do that. <laughs> right. But it's been done. I, I still hear that song every time I turn on like the local rock station, Rock 101, friggin' Thunderstruck is on. I don't know anybody who goes and listens to Thunderstruck on purpose. You don't have it's to. It's literally, just by law, it has to be on the radio at some point every day, all the time. Thun yeah, Thunderstruck is pretty ubiquitous whenever it comes to like rock radio stations. Almost thankfully, there are no more rock radio stations uh, like around here. It's They've all been bought up by Christian radio stations. So unless there's like a... A Christian knockoff equivalent to Thunderstruck. I don't think I'm going to hear it. True. it's There probably isn't. Not yet. 
Well, you, I'd let you borrow one of the multiple ones we have up here if I could get it to you, Bill. Multiple what? Rock and roll stations, oh. so you could get your fill of the daily ACDC double shot. Played every hour on the hour, sometimes four times an hour. I was down in Florida. Usually the, the, the Florida radio stations are actually really good, or at least they used to be, right? I, I had said to my friend, I was like, I go, what the hell is going on with all the radio stations in Florida? Like Now it's like Christian Station, Christian Station, Country Station, Christian Station, Christian Station, Country Station. And then he, point, he points up and he goes, maybe he's trying to tell you something. And I, <laughs> and I was like, you know, I really wish he would stop the school shooting problem instead of start trying to give me subtle hints over my radio dial. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Sure, moves in mysterious ways. All right, speaking of moving in mysterious ways, May the 8th of 1993, uh, a 16-year-old named Kieron Thomas disguises himself as a motorman and, and takes a New York City subway train and 2,000 passengers on a three-hour joyride. <laughs> Yes, I love this story. As, as it was presented to me, this kid tried to steal a train. Now, <laughs> there's a, an old philosophy that says never steal anything small. You know, because if you get if you get caught, you know, you don't want to get caught for stealing a Snickers bar. That's you know pointless. Steal something big. But the whole point of stealing is being able to keep what you steal. You can't keep a train; it's on a track, and you can't bring it home with you. And no matter what happens, they're always going to be able to find you because the, the a subway of all things is it's a big circle. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a funny story to be that obsessed to make your own motorman uniform or get a motorman uniform and walk in, punch in, and. You know, I don't know how you do that at 16 and make it work, but... And you could you could tell he didn't have my mother. Oh, you're not going to steal a train. You'll never get away with it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> That's too hard. That's too hard. <laughs> Why don't you go play the triangle? It's just one thing. Ding. <laughs> That's it. Well, what I like about the story is, is how ultimately he ended up getting caught. And he only got caught at the very end of the circuit. It was because he'd gone too fast around a corner and it tripped the emergency brake for the, the train. Right. And the train stopped. And he did not know how to turn the emergency brake off. And that's that's how he ended up getting caught. He couldn't couldn't figure out how to turn off the emergency brake to get the train to the last station or second to last station. Can you imagine? Would have been able to do it. Can you imagine being one of these two thousand people just scared out of your mind? Like what the hell is going on? Here's the thing. Okay, this is the, another aspect of the story that I love. Is he did the regular route. So he didn't just like race off into the subway system and not stop. He stopped at every station that he was supposed to for the amount of time that he was supposed to be, really? he was supposed to be there. <laughs> yes. Wanted to be a subway driver, and damn it, he was one until he went too fast around a corner. Yeah, it wasn't like he had 2,000 people trapped, you know, pressed against the glass like the, the residents of Springfield on the monorail as the thing went whipping around the town. They, he was going from st stop to stop and people getting on and people getting off the way that they were supposed to. That's so freaking awesome. I've changed my mind, though. I think maybe this kid did have my mom as a mom because he probably had a much bigger dream. Like, you know, I want to be, a, I want to fly the space shuttle. Oh, yo, that's too hard. That's too hard. You'll never do that. Why don't you learn how to drive a subway? That's something a little. It's hard to make an astronaut uniform with the sewing supply. <laughs> but I can make you a train conductor outfit. All right. Let's wrap up the week. All right. May 9th, 1961. Uh, FCC Chairman Newton N. Minow criticizes television as a vast wasteland of garbage and advertisements, and that's pretty much been the case. Going all the way back to 1961, I think TV was like four years old at that point. Let's uh, all 
you know, say a nice little silent, you know, moment of silence for our friend Mr. Minnow that he died before YouTube happened. <laughs> right? Well, I'm thinking about like what was on in like the at that time. He's like in '61. It would have been like I Love Lucy, yep. yeah, Honeymooners, yep. classic. Uh, Jackie Gleason show, which was also at the same time, classic. There was Ed Sullivan, classic. There's like well, uh, that's that's probably what happened was he saw the TV show My Mother the Car and just lost it. <laughs> like that's it. This is garbage. We peaked. Yeah. If thirty percent of the TV on Friday night is this bad, imagine the other sixty-six <laughs> percent. TV has always carried that stigma. It's always carried the stigma that it's like an idiot box and it's it's a vast uh, imagination destroying blight on society. Ever since it premiered, it picked some of that up from radio. Radio had its you know had its critics, but nowhere near as as vast and as as big as television has always had. Still has today. I, I, I'm going to use the word, but I'm not using it in the political sense. You're always going to have like conservatives that don't adjust to change. You know. Right. Because, like, when comic books first came out, they they were saying that was rotting kids' brains. You know, now yep. now you, you, you almost have to beg a kid to read anything, you know? You should be happy that the kid was reading comic books. There's a much bigger conversation to have about that, too, in that it, it's always shifted how regulations work as far as advertising and what sort of programming can exist and why and how that has evolved over time. So the children's program became a thing after this uh, in the 19, early 1970s, late 1960s, where television stations could only play so many hours with a, a, a week of non-educational like educational programming. They had a certain number of hours a week they had to dedicate to it with no commercials that was targeted at children right. because... They knew parents were sort of using it as a babysitter. It's where PBS came from. And like the children's television workshop all came out of that conversation that started in 1961. He should, like I said, be, uh, be thankful that he didn't live long enough to see YouTube. As bad as some like, like YouTube can be, the worst YouTube video is solid freaking gold compared to the comment sections of the YouTube videos. <laughs> like I remember there was this one commercial for Taco Bell that I thought the actress in it was pretty there was something pretty about her Just, and the, the commercial was long gone but I wanted to see if it still existed on YouTube and I found it right but he, she, she, I forget what she said. She had one particular line in the commercial and then somebody in the comment section like repeated the line and then said whore <laughs> <laughs> You got yourself a username and an account just so you can call this woman a whore. Good for you. Well, when, when YouTube first first started, like the first five months that YouTube was out, I had a I had a channel and I had posted videos of me doing martial arts stuff at the martial arts school that I was at. So I, I had a place that I could go back and look at them and share them with my instructor and we could critique right. it. And I got accused of everything from like just personally leading to the downfall of all martial arts to to pick something even more hyperbolic than that by virtue of me posting videos of me doing sword forms and stuff. It was really, really difficult. I ended up. I was in a, a very ambitious uh, production of The Who's Tommy, and I had posted one of the the clips from the show so I could show my friends. But like other people found it, and one of the comments was, "Why would you post this?" <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, thanks. Thanks, appreciate that. <laughs> All right, let's go on to the celebrity birthdays. All right. May the 3rd, 1947, Canadian magician Doug Henning. For Generation X, that might be like some of our first introduction to magic on television. 
Doug Henning used to have a lot of uh, magic uh, specials on primetime television. He was kind of like the predecessor to David Copperfield, who also had uh, specials on, on primetime a little uh, after Doug Henning. Very hippie looking. He had uh, long curly hair, a mustache, and a... I remember he had a majestic mustache yep. and a lot of rainbow. Yep, and it would have been a much less majestic mustache if he didn't have such a majestic overbite he did look like a walrus he was a great performer a great magician unfortunately he was diagnosed with liver cancer he was young too he's like 52 years old let this be a lesson to you and instead of you know the the treatment like like you like you do he thought he could beat it with diet and transcendental meditation and uh he didn't he didn't last a year he, he died shortly thereafter, yeah. Yeah, liver cancer is really bad stuff, and no matter how much abracadabra you can do, it's... Right, yeah. Andy Warhol was like, yeah. He got cancer, and he thought he could cure it by, like, laying a bunch of crystals all over his body, and that didn't work out so well. It yeah. didn't work. All right, moving on. May 4th, 1937, uh, surf rock pioneer Dick Dale, whose guitar influence extends from Jimi Hendrix through Pete Townsend through, you name it, early 1960s, right up through until, I don't know, he finally stopped touring and permanently in t- uh, 2019. His uh, style of instrumental, hard, fast rock music is, is something that has been influential from the very beginnings of rock and roll. And it's interesting that he did surf music because he's from like our home area of Boston, which is the least surfy place I can think of. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing out there, Charles? <laughs> We're going to have to keep on paddling. Literally, the guy would have to be from, like, Kansas to be less surfy, yeah. Right, right, yeah, Montana. <laughs> the the drummer for one of the bands I played in, his name was Dale. And I just remember every time we went looking through a, a record, you know, CDs in a record store and all that, and I come across Dick Dale, I would have to hold it up to him. I'd go like, hey, you got a new album? <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he sort of came back into Providence, like, because they used the song Miserloo in Pulp Fiction. Right, it's right. the opening song. That... So that so it sort of brought that style of music back. It ended up being a pretty big market for it at that time, too. Yeah, yeah, it's true. All right, so moving on to May the 5th, 1943. Monty Python's Flying Circus alumni, Michael Palin. I mean, people that are like his casual watchers of uh, Monty Python, Yeah, they know John Cleese, Eric Idle, and, and then maybe... Maybe Terry Jones. Michael Palin's not really a name that, you know, sticks to your tongue, so to speak. But if you see a picture of him, you're like, oh, yeah, I know who that is. Because, like, I mean, he sang the Lumberjack song. Everyone knows that one. Hilarious piece of trivia. You know who else sang, once sang the Lumberjack song on stage with Monty Python's Flying Circus? Who? George Harrison. Oh, really? Yeah, it was like 1974 or something, yeah. Oh, wow. And one of my favorite uh, sketches from Monty Python and the Meaning of Life uh, is with Michael Palin whenever they're all marching up and down the square and he's the kind of like the drill sergeant. And he's like, all right, who's got something better to do than march up and down the square? And then he's like, well, I've got, I've got a piano lesson. All right, off you go then. <laughs> right. At the end, it was just him. Yep. <laughs> All right, and moving on. May 6, 1915, still one of the greatest directors in American history, although his ability to finish projects is uh, uh, up for discussion. Orson Welles uh, started his, his acting uh, on radio with the Mercury Theater and then transitioned that into a career in Hollywood uh, where he made 
the first like real super popular amazing film called Citizen Kane. Yep. And then everything else after that was sort of mixed bag. Citizen Kane is still regarded as like the best movie ever made. It's a fantastic film. It's, it holds up even today. It's still watchable. I've never seen it, but somebody told me the ending, so I feel like I don't need to see it. The techniques and stuff that came to that film, you've seen them in every film since right, then. Yeah. But they were all they almost all started there, like lightning sound, where sound gets closer to the screen as the character gets closer to the screen, and all of these amazing map painting shots and all the all the ways that he frames like relationships. It's an amazing movie. You should watch the whole thing. Don't don't just be amazed by the rosebud revelation there's a lot lot to it <laughs> my friend in a piece of genius uh referred to sleepaway camp as the rosebud of horror movies <laughs> those who know know okay let's say moving on to the seventh uh a man by the name of robert hedges uh born in 1951 you would only really know this guy from the from one role he was on the show welcome back carter and the in the late 70s uh he played juan epstein the puerto rican jew as they referred to himself isn't he the one who brought in the notes that were all signed by epstein's mother yes that was like his uh a repeating gag he would bring it he would be out sick and they would bring in the note as the teacher mr carter was reading the note epstein was mouthing along with it because it was fairly obvious that he wrote it and they were all signed epstein's mother <laughs> uh, the, the show welcome back carter was a vehicle for gabe kaplan who was a comedian at the time and uh, you know that was his show but the real breakout star was was john travolta that's a show where where he kind of got his start i mean he, uh, he did he did carry before that but welcome back, Otto. That was his big springboard into into fame, fortune, and foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, but happy birthday, uh, Robert Hedges. Next, May eighth, nineteen forty. Speaking of uh, characters who made the transition from one media style to another, uh, Ricky Nelson, son of Ozzy Nelson and Harriet Nelson of the TV show The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet. He was a rock star. His his stuff was like Hello Mary Lou and fell into that very early 1950s radio-friendly, slightly softer teenage rock. It's all super listenable. You can still enjoy it today. And uh, had a minor comeback in the late 1970s with a song called Garden Party, uh, recounting uh, a show he did at Madison Square Garden where everybody was singing for the old hits and he didn't want to play them. He wanted to play stuff that he had done more recently. And lest we forget his twin sons. Yeah, that's right. Nelson. Uh, yeah. And his daughter, Tracy Nelson, too, who's an actress. Oh, yeah. That's right. so yeah, they, yeah. they all stayed in Hollywood and did a lot of stuff. Gunner and the other Gunner and his, brother. and his brother, yeah. Uh, <laughs> all I remember is that they had ripped jeans and played very, very friendly music. You know what? We're not at worst song ever yet, so I can drop this and you can yell all you want, but I still remember the chorus to the one hit. Because that was super freaking catchy. Oh, love, what was it? Love and affection. Love and affection. Yeah, this was a not a bad song at all. You, you know what? I, I I'm not going to disagree with you. It's it's not what I listen to, but it's it's not offensive either. No, what's interesting about Nelson is before they were Nelson, they were another band called Power Tool, right? And they, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Thankfully, yeah, good taste prevailed. Uh, but they had a song called Two Heads Are Better Than One." Right, yep. and it's about you know being twins and stuff like that. And I figured, but that song is in the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure soundtrack. It's like a montage uh, song. Oh wow, I didn't even think of that. Wow, yeah, that's you right. You know the song I'm talking about, right? Two heads are better than one. Yeah, that's Nelson. Oh wow. Yep. <laughs> 
I'll have to go back and dig up that yep. one on good old YouTube. And that's later. a fun song. Yep. And yep. wrapping up the birthdays on May the 9th in 1893, a man by the name of William Moulton Marston. Moulton. <laughs> he was an American psychologist and he invented the lie detector. And Among other things, yeah, but yes. Uh, yeah, he invented an early prototype of the lie detector. He's also a writer and he was a co-creator of the Wonder Woman character. And uh, and actually he was born right over here, uh, Saugus, Massachusetts. Saugus is... Uh, About halfway between you and me. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just north of Boston. Yep. Boy, boy, this guy's got a one-freaking-track mind. Think about it. He invented the lie detector, and then Wonder Woman's lasso, it, if she had you tied up in it, you had to tell the truth. It's like, man, right. this guy must have got burned. He must have got burned in a relationship. This, this, this lying bitch. Yeah. There's a pretty good movie about his uh, life called uh, Professor Marsden and the Wonder Women. Totally worth checking out. Yeah. I, I'm more familiar with his stuff, aside from the Wonder Woman stuff, because he's also the father of Disc which I still teach people through at work. What is it? Based on his book called, it's called DISC. It's like a personality type test or work styles test. Uh-huh. Uh, and it identifies whether or not you are more dominant. It has like four quadrants. It is dominance, inducement, submission, and compliance. And you fall into one of those personality types based on a set of characteristics that you might demonstrate. Uh-huh. And then based on that, it sort of identifies kind of how you communicate with other people and how you deal with conflict and stuff. He wrote a book called Emotions of Normal People that lays it all out. And then other social scientists took it and turned it into, like, online-type personality testing and stuff. It's really neat. Uh, uh, so, thanks to him, we have, uh, which Lego movie character are you? Take this test uh, on Facebook. <laughs> exactly. yeah. If you were pizza, what pizza, what type of pizza would you be? Now, when you said disc, I, I just assumed you meant, like, a compact disc, which is where you put music on. And occasionally, you will also find... The Worst song ever now i am fairly sure if there's a god in heaven that this uh song that we're about to talk about never got put onto compact disc although i'm sure it did carrying on in our segment of worst song ever called who the hell gave you a microphone we are featuring this week the crooning singing styles of one mr john travolta who we just mentioned oh boy two days ago from the from the show welcome back hotter Right around the same time Welcome Back Carter came out, you know, he was such a breakout star, they just, like, pushed this guy, like, trying to get a cat into a car carrier, yeah. into the vocal booth, and just, here, sing, you know? They gave him one whole LP that had no singles on it, and then they gave him a second LP that had this song on it. This song that we're dissecting is called Let Her In. Whenever it comes on, I'm like, let me out of the room. <laughs> well, it's funny because like it has such a bad title that if you say it fast, it sounds like letter N. Like it's something that you would hear on a, like a Sesame, like a Sesame Street, Street, Street song. Yeah. All right. So let's let's play this clip. Gonna open up after so long. Gonna open up after so long with my feet stuck. And my head against the wall I've been called And I can't answer why Why This song is This song has no hook at all yeah. It just goes It doesn't have It doesn't Yeah, it's nothing The song's only like two and a half minutes long So there's this, this great bit in the last part Where he's, he sounds like he's trying to go up one octave yeah. And just can't 
<laughs> so it friggin' flat tops in the bridge and then drops back into the regular. It's so, it's just so not. Let, let me tell you the, the horror that is my life, okay? Because to do these segments and all that, I listen to the song. And in this particular case, I listen to most of the album. Now, the album that this song was on and the one before it don't exist, you know, in, dig- in the digital world. They're not on Spotify. But much like our friend Don Johnson from last week, they put out a compilation album. Like, like check this one out. Like, like the title of this isn't pandering. It's called Travolta Fever, and you got to see the cover. <laughs> he's like mid. He's like posing like mid dance. It's awesome, and it's basically the those two albums that we brought up like kind of smashed together. It's a double EP. Like somebody needs right. like four sides of Travolta. <laughs> So I'm listening to this, right? My first impression as I'm listening to this album is this guy can't sing. And how I know that he can't sing is because I can't sing. And he sings exactly like I do. (laughs) Right. It's not like he's constantly flat or constantly sharp. He's just, it's not, it's never right there. It's just always on the edge. Yeah. Like I, I can almost picture like whoever his voice coach was. As this is being recorded in a booth someplace with, you know, he's got the big ears and headset on and the microphone with the pop screen and all the engineers desperately trying to find anything that makes him sound like not him. And his voice coach is with his or her hands like in fists over their eyes and just wishing that they would they were somewhere anywhere else on earth as as he warbles through this terrible song. I'm going to say he quit. that's it i'm out well the thing is like if you listen to the grease soundtrack it's not bad sandy yes (laughs) this stuff on travolta fever it's like it's all like one take stuff really so far my favorite track on there just just speak for the sheer ridiculousness of it is a song called razzmatazz right and then (laughs) and the thing about it too is the first song on it is Let Her In. Like, they lead in with the yeah. the with the with single. Well, there's no reason to listen to the rest of the record after that. Right. <laughs> the rest of, are you, did you listen to the rest of the songs? Because they might just be him just reading passages from Scientology. <laughs> that, that could be, that very well could be it. No, there's 20 songs on this album. I made it through about seven. Oh, wow. Then Good Taste Prevailed. Uh, another thing about the Let Her In. God, I'm I'm like I I must hate my own guts or something like that because I'm watching videos, I'm doing research for this song. I found a performance of American Bandstand with like Dick Clark talking about him for like four minutes and then him singing for like two and a half. I almost jumped through my screen. Whenever I was in uh, my first band, right, my guitar player had this horrible habit that he always wanted to sit down. Like, the music we were playing wasn't exactly, uh, you know, mosh music. We were playing, you know, kind of slow melodic stuff. But he always wanted to sit down, and I would always yell at him. As a matter of fact, on one gig, I threw a chair at him. (laughs) I would always yell at him. It's like, stop sitting down. Nobody wants to see a band where you're sitting down. It looks terrible. Well, American Bandstand, which is a dance show, for Christ's sakes, here's John Travolta in like this like sweater shirt that looks like it was made for his little sister. Yeah. And he's over there singing Let Her In and he's sitting down on a freaking like oversized bar stool. I'm going to guess it's because he didn't have enough coordination to do anything but either stand stock still like he was bolted to the floor. So at least that made him look like a human. Right. While he was warbling through this terrible piece of trash. Oh, like, or give him a mic stand to hang on or something like like Jim Morrison, you know? 
But this guy's got like no charisma. <laughs> he really yeah, does. Yeah, like though. like it's less like... than jo- like Don Johnson. At least Don Johnson was doing that like fist pumping move, right? Yeah. John Travolta. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. yeah. John Travolta's just sitting there smiling ear to ear. All right. Well, with letter N or letter N, uh, fully discussed to the point where any more discussion of it would be just not worth the time. No. I have my trivia question for you, Bill. Do you remember the trivia question that I asked you? The, at the trivia of the show? question you asked me was, "What was the longest song title to make it to number one on the Billboard Hot 100?" You said that way better than I did at the beginning of the show. But yes, that's exactly. Now I have a guess, but I don't think this song made it to number one. Uh, my guess is the police. When the world is running down, you make the best of what's still around. Nope. That's a great guess, though. Yeah. It is, of all things, yes. a sort of crossover country song from 1976 called, and it's got a parenthetical that leads it out, Hey, Won't You Play? That's the parenthetical part. Parenthetical means in parentheses, right? Correct, Amundo. Okay, so in parentheses it is what? Hey, Won't You Play? And then, yep. out of parentheses, it's another Somebody Done Somebody Wrong song. Oh, yeah, I remember that song. Yep. Uh-uh. Yeah. Oh, won't you play another somebody dance somebody wrong song? And I get my ukulele so and I, I hope there's a and I hope there's a G chord in it. And while I miss my baby, but I miss my baby. baby. Yeah, that's right. That was a guy named B.J. Thomas who uh, actually. Oh, that's the raindrops keep falling on my head, guy. Yeah, yeah, he took out an Academy Award for that song. But all right, well, that's gonna wrap up the show for this week. We will see you right back here at this very spot next week, guys. Right. Have a great week, everyone. All right. And say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, everybody. All right, bye, guys. Special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibley. This week was way better last year. You can follow and or message us over on Instagram or on Facebook at T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure you tell your friends if you like our show. And if you don't like our show, tell your friends you did like it. It'll be a great prank you can play on them. Have a good week, guys.